Well, we've come to this interesting section of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, and Paul has, uh, has shifted his focus specifically to the nation Israel. In chapter 9, we saw uh, Israel's election through God's sovereignty, how God chose to uh, to, chose the nation of Israel and wanted to represent himself through the nation of Israel. As we pick up in chapter 10 this morning, we're going to see Israel's rejection of God's way of doing things, so to speak. And then as we get to chapter 11 next week, we're going to see Israel's future restoration. So although, and, and when I say Israel's rejection, we're talking about in the life of Paul, at the time of, you know, right after the time of Christ, rejecting the Messiah is what we're talking about, them rejecting uh, Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But don't for a minute think that just because they rejected Christ that, they're, that God's done with them because chapter 11, which we'll look at next week, will begin talking about their future restoration. So to pick up in context, we're going to back up to chapter 9, verse 30, just so we're all on the same page and we understand what Paul is talking about here. So in chapter 9, verse 30, if you'll just follow along with me, I'm going to read down to verse 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, remember who the Gentiles were? Everybody who wasn't Jewish, right? They had the Jewish, you had the nation Israel were the Jews, and then everybody else were considered Gentiles. So that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Paul has just told us that his brethren, his brothers Israel, they failed to obtain the righteousness of God. And he told us why. Uh, it's not that they weren't trying to receive God's righteousness, but they weren't doing it God's way. They were trying to receive God's righteousness by the works of the law. Remember, the law had been given to the nation Israel, meaning the, the Ten Commandments and the Jewish laws. There's 613 of them. If you want to Google it, 613 Jewish laws, you can go read them and see exactly what laws we're talking about there. I'm not going to go over them with you this morning. I trust that if you're interested, you'll look it up on your own. You know, whew, I'm glad he's not going to read all of them. But what they were doing is, God said, these are the laws. These, this is the law of the land that I want you to keep. And the purpose of the law was to show them that they couldn't keep the law. But instead of realizing, hey, we can't do this, we need some help, they found their righteousness in how well they kept the law. And they felt that, hey, we're keeping the law better than everybody else, so we must, therefore, be more righteous than everybody else, right? That's the way they were looking at things. But the guys and I, we've been reading through the book of James last month, we know that in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all of the law. So we understand that, wait a minute, if they make a mistake, if you were to keep 99.9% .9 of the law, you're guilty, period. It's, it's a guilty verdict. If you mess up in one point, and the nation of Israel was supposed to see this, and they didn't catch on to it, and they didn't realize it, so when Israel failed to obtain, where they failed to obtain righteousness, the Gentiles succeeded, and they weren't even looking for it, Paul said. They were just going about it, but here comes Christ on the scene, and, and they, people started preaching the gospel. They started believing, and they started to get saved. Well, how is it that the Gentiles received righteousness or received salvation of, of the Lord, and the Israel didn't? It, because the Gentiles did it through faith. 
Now, most of us in this room were probably all considered Gentiles in this area. Most of I don't think there's any Orthodox Jews that have been, you know, living the life of the law. So the Jews stumbled at the rock of offense, but the Gentiles believed on the rock, meaning the rock being a picture of Jesus Christ. And since Israel stumbled and, and failed to obtain righteousness, Paul's going to tell us as we look into chapter 10 what happened. How did, why, why did, how did this happen? What, what, was it, what, what caused this? Where, where did they go short? And look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He's reminding, Paul says, brethren, my brothers, my fellow Christians, my countrymen, I want Israel to be saved. Remember what he said at the beginning of chapter 9? Paul said, I would give up my salvation if the nation Israel would realize their need for Jesus Christ and be saved. Paul said, I'd give up what I have in the Lord if the nation would be saved. You know what the amazing thing about that statement? Because they weren't very nice to Paul, were they? You could actually say they were Paul's enemy in a sense. They had put Paul in jail. They had stoned him. They were causing problems everywhere he went. Yet wherever Paul went, where was the first place that he went? To the synagogue to preach to the Jews. And when the Jews rejected him, he went next door and started preaching to the Gentiles on the streets and wherever they would hear him. But yet Paul's heart for his countrymen, who had kind of become as even his enemy, is one that says, I would give up my salvation for you, and I desire for you guys to be saved. He wants them to be saved. There's a heart for them. Notice Paul not only desires the Jews are saved, but he says, I'm praying for it. I'm praying that you would be saved. Do you guys have people in your life that are unbelievers that you're praying for? There should be. If you have friends and family and loved ones, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's your children, you should be, have unbelievers that you're praying for. It should be, you, your desire is for them to be saved. That's what Paul's expressing here. Not only does he desire the Jews be saved, he said, I am praying for you guys to be saved. I am praying for, for your salvation. Do you have those you're petitioning for? Are there people in your life that you are really, really praying for? You know, that shows that you care about somebody, doesn't it? Because care will lead to prayer, won't it? The more you care about somebody, the more you're going to find yourself praying for them. Ask a mother how much she prays for her children. Probably a lot more than most of us would pray for a friend or even a relative. Or as Compared to a child praying for their parents, they probably don't even think of such a thing. But for a mom and a dad to pray for their kids, they care so deeply about them. They love them so deeply. And it just shows Paul's, he's deeply moved for this group of people that although they've caused him physical harm and they've caused him hardship, he realized, I was once part of them. They, I, I did what they're doing. I see how lost they were because it was part of me. I was there. And he goes on to explain in verse 2 the problem of the Jewish people. He says, and he can say this, he, he can say, for I bear them witness because he was one of them. He, he, he's Jewish. He understands it. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So Paul recognizes, he says, wait a minute, you guys, speaking to the Jewish people, you guys have a zeal for God. There's no doubt that you believe in God. There's no doubt that you're excited about God. There, there's something for God. But your zeal for God, it's not according to knowledge. They have a zeal. They have a deep devotion to the Lord. But the zeal is not according to the proper knowledge, to the right knowledge. They obviously had the knowledge of God because they were Jewish. They had all the things of God. But they didn't understand the full knowledge of God. Otherwise, they would not have stumbled over Christ. 
Christ would not have been a stumbling block to them, what Paul said in the end of chapter 9. And their problem was they wanted to establish their own righteousness rather than submit to the righteousness of God. Let me say it again. They wanted to establish their own righteousness. In other words, I'm righteous by how I keep the law rather than accept and submit to God's righteousness, being Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting area of Scripture because it would require them to, uh, to, submit to, to submit to God's righteousness. And I always like the words, and I like to go a little bit deeper sometimes in the Greek, and I looked up that word submit, and I wanted to know what it meant. And here's what it means. It's a military word. It means to arrange under, to subordinate as soldiers in a battalion under a commanding officer to put oneself under orders or to obey. So it's the idea of positioning yourself underneath of someone else. You see, the Jews wanted to establish their own righteousness. They didn't want to be under God's way of doing it. We're going to do things our way rather than submit to the righteousness of God. Appropriation by faith of God's righteousness involves not only the discarding of all dependence upon self and self-effort for salvation, but also the heart's submission or capitulation to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this is what the Jews did not want to do. They didn't want to accept Jesus as their Savior and their, Lord, and their Lord. The knowledge they're missing, it comes up in verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. They're ignorant means to, they're in error, have gone astray. They're being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. God's righteousness. It's God's right standing as it pertains to the law of God. It's all 613 laws of the Old Testament. The Jews are still trying to seek that on their own. They're trying to still establish their own righteousness based on how well they keep the law. And the standard is, if I do it better than you, then I must be righteous and you must not be. We're going to get to why this is important. And Paul Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3 this, not having my own righteousness. Paul said, I don't have my own righteousness. Paul, Paul understands that his righteousness was like filthy rags before the Lord. He says, I don't, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So the righteousness that of God comes by faith in Jesus Christ, not by doing what you're supposed to be doing, not by following the law or following the rules that you or anybody else has set up. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Concerning the law, Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 5. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Well, the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, wasn't it? The law, was, the law was fulfilled. Paul just said Christ is the end of law for righteousness. To who? To everybody? No, to those who believe on Jesus Christ. The law is not over. It doesn't mean it's no longer in existence. It's still there. It's still doing what it's supposed to be doing. The Jews, there, there's, there's Orthodox Jews that are still following the law to the best of their ability. It's still out there. But to the believer, the law has not become the way that we relate with the Lord. We relate with God through Jesus Christ, not based on the law, right? Now, Paul tells us that even Moses understood this. 
And he looks at, look at verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. In other words, if you want to relate to God based on the law, then you're going to be judged by the law. If you, want to God, if you want to relate to God based on your relationship through Jesus Christ or with Jesus Christ, then you're not going to be judged by the law because that law is no longer, it's, it's not what you're living under. You're living under, under Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a difference there. And I want to kind of spell that out for you if I can make it easy for you to understand. Because sometimes when I talk about Jews and Gentiles, you go, ah, I don't understand all that. Let me make it real easy for you. The law means legalism. It means, that, it means that there's a set of rules for which somebody's living by. And here's what I can be willing to bet. Some of you guys came in here this morning, and you don't feel very righteous. You feel like, well, I've kind of had a rough week. It's been kind of a bad week. I found myself stuck in sin this week. Maybe I was worrying about some things I shouldn't worry about. Maybe I was lying a few times. Maybe there was sexual sin. Maybe there was pride. Maybe there's alcohol and drugs. Whatever it is that you find yourself lust. I, I mean, I'm not going to list them all because I might forget somebody. And you think, well, I, I, I need to go to church. I got to get to church. I got to get right to God. It'll make me feel better about myself. Somehow I can go to church and then I'll feel better about myself and I can cancel out all these things I did all week. I even had an argument on the way to church, maybe you're thinking. You ever have an argument on the way to church? Isn't that funny? You're driving to church with your husband or your wife and all of a sudden things blow up in the car. It's a time where you want to talk about everything wrong last week. It's like, no, that's not the time. I can tell you what, my wife and I haven't had an argument on the way to church in 15 years. We don't drive together. <laughs> We solved that problem a long time ago. Now, don't do that. We don't have part space in the parking lot, okay? <laughs> but if you think this is the morning where you're going to have the argument, then do it. Because it, it happens to everybody. It's like you're going to spend some time with the Lord, and the enemy creeps in, and before you know it, the fight's on, and you walk into church, and you go, hi, how are you guys? Great, good to see you. You know? Then you get back out in the car after church, and it starts all over again. I've never been that way. I, I just know you got, no, I'm just kidding. I know how that goes. But you see, some of you guys come in and you, ha and you, and you come bearing the weight of the world. And you go, I just got to get right with God. I need, I, I've, I'm not feeling very righteous today. And somehow you think in your mind, by going to church, I'm going to be better. And you, you, you kind of weigh out the scales. That's legalism. That's legalism. You're, you're, you're looking to your actions for your standing before God. It wasn't the fact, it doesn't matter that you had an argument with your husband or your wife or this happened last week or that happened last it has, If you're a, in Christ, it has no bearing on your righteousness. But when we as Christians go, well, it does, you know, I don't feel very righteous, then, then I, I got to go get straightened out. You don't understand your righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ, not by how you did this week. Because let's face it, you're going to have some good weeks and you're going to have some bad weeks, aren't you? But there's another side to this. Because while one or some of you maybe came in bearing the weight of the world, and I'm just a wreck and my life's falling apart and I'm not very righteous and this and that, there's another group of people. You know how they came in? I'm doing pretty good. I, I've, I had a good week this week. I got up early and I read my Bible twice. I dropped something in the offering bucket on the way in. I, you know, I, I, helped, I called my neighbor to check on them because they were sick. Maybe I wrote a card to somebody. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Therefore, I'm feeling pretty righteous. No, no, it's the same thing. You're looking for your righteousness based on what you did this week or how you acted this week. You're, you're, you're still looking for righteousness based on your works. You're still seeking that God. How did I do this week? It doesn't matter how you did this week. You can still be righteous if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the thing. 
But there's a third type of person that came in, and it kind of mimics the second type of person. They look for their righteousness on actions in a different way. They like to get to church, and they look around the room. They look at everybody else. They go, oh, I can't believe he's wearing that to church. I'm dressed up a little nicer than he is, you know. Or they look up, why is he so dressed up? Doesn't he know that we, have the, we, we can dress casual here at Calvary Chapel? And you begin to look at everybody else and you go, oh, yeah, I heard about that guy's problems. Oh, I heard about what she did this week. Yeah, whew, thank you, Lord, I'm not her, you know. You see, they're looking for their righteousness on a works-based thing, but it's based on how everybody else is doing. It's the same type of principle. When, you, when I ask you or when you look and say, am I righteous before the Lord? The answer is, do you have Christ or don't you have Christ? If you have Christ, the answer is yes. Paul says this righteousness, it comes by faith, not by how you did this last week. Now, isn't, that a pretty good, isn't that pretty good news? Aren't you, aren't you glad that I'm here telling you this morning, you can be righteous for God whether, based on whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ, not on how you lived your life that week. And there's people that will go, no, no, Rob, you don't understand. My life was too bad. I mean, I need a, I need a spiritual spanking. I need a, I need a whipping. You know, you don't understand. God, God can't use me. No, no, it, it, it's, no, he can you can be forgiven for all of the things in your past. You, you can be forgiven. You can still be made righteous because when you do that, when you look back at your past, what are you looking at? Your works. You're looking, how did I live my life? I live my, no, I did things that are so bad, but it works the other way. Somebody could look and go, I've been in church my whole life. I've never done any of that. I've never used drugs. I've never done any of that stuff. I, I'm, I'm just wonderful and, and a great person. It's, you're lucky to know me. They're still looking for their same works, aren't they? It's, it's just a different way of looking at it, but they're still looking at works. Paul says righteousness of God comes by faith. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. So the righteousness of faith says this. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend to the, into the abyss, that is to bring Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. According to the righteousness that comes by faith, Paul's saying, we don't need to say, all right, I want to go meet with the Lord. I got to go up on a super high mountain. Or I've got to go down, I've got, I got to really go deep in the doctrines of Scripture. I've got to really understand, and if you don't understand, you can't meet with the Lord. I must descend deep into the earth or deep into the doctrine. In other words, what he's saying is don't add to what Christ has done. Don't, don't add to it. It's, it's not based on you going higher or going deeper or you doing this or you doing that. It's based on your faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's essentially what he's saying. Instead of having to go to great lengths to achieve righteousness by the law, and boy, that's hard work, isn't it? keeping the law, we can immediately receive righteousness by faith by trusting in the word of the gospel, by trusting in Jesus Christ. So here's the question. How do we get that kind of righteousness? Paul, if you're, if you're tracking with Paul in Romans to this point, all right, Paul, righteousness, is not, righteousness of God is not by the works of the law. It's not by my works. It's by faith. How do I get that? And he tells you, look at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says there's two parts to receiving the righteousness of God. Confessing and believing. 
Confessing and believing. Now, we're going to dig a little deeper. Confessing with your mouth. What does that really mean? What does that mean? Oftentimes we've taken it just to mean that, you know, if you, I'm going to pray a prayer, you repeat after me, and because you said it out loud, you're confessing with your mouth, and we've taken it to that. But that's not really what the word means. What the word means is this. It's made up of two Greek words. One word means the same. The other word means to speak. So you have speaking the same, or the same, or to speak. It could be said like this, to speak the same thing. In other words, to, to, to say the same thing as someone else. That's what the word means, to confess. To agree with someone in reference to something, you're speaking the same thing. So what does it mean in, in a relationship to Christ? To confess the Lord Jesus means to be in agreement with everything Jesus says about himself and everything the Bible says about Jesus. It means to be in agreement with, to say the same things that the Bible says about Christ. So if someone were to come to you and say, well, I believe this, but I don't believe that. Well, you're not confessing. You're not really in agreement with everything the Bible says about Jesus. You've just taken part of it. And that's not, that's not a full confession. It's not just speaking with your mouth. It's speaking in agreement to those things. But it has to be, notice what it says. I have to confess, but what do I have to confess? I have to confess the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. That word for Lord it's kudios, the Greek word. Kudios is what it is. It's translated, if you were to get the Septuagint or the Greek, uh, the Greek Old Testament, and you were to look up that word kudios, you would find it translated as Jehovah. Jehovah is what it means. Jehovah. Kudios. Jehovah. It's same, same word. It's in the Greek, and it speaks of the deity of Christ. It speaks of Christ's deity. It's translated Jehovah. The word Jesus is Yahshua or Yahshua, or Joshua in English, it means Jehovah saves. It means Jehovah saves. So to confess Jesus as Lord, or kudios, to confess him as your kudios, includes a heartfelt belief on his deity, on, on Jesus being God. That's what, the word, that's what the word picture that Paul's painting there for us. It, it, has, it includes his, in, his uh, incarnation, his vicarious atonement uh, for you on the cross, and his bodily resurrection. When you, when you confess him as your Lord, you are identifying with him. You are, you are saying that he is God. And uh, it, it's, it's th th this is interesting because no Jew would ever do that. No Jew would ever look at Christ and call him a, a Lord or God. They, they would never see that. And no Gentile would, would either. Because who did the Gentiles at this time refer to as their, their kudios? The emperor whoever they were underneath, that would have been their Lord. When you, in other words, the word here means when you say Lord, you are the supreme authority in my life. You are the number one authority. So when someone says Lord Jesus, they are, when they confess him, they are saying that he is my kudios. We are ranking him above everything else in our life. It's not just a simple pray a prayer and repeat after me. That's what the confession means. When someone confesses, they're saying that the Lord is the leader above all else, including myself, including myself, the Lord is above me in my life. That's, that's, the, that's the depth or the meaning of that word. Uh, William Barclay said this way, if a man called Jesus kudios, he was ranking him with the emperor and with God. He was giving him the supreme place in his life he was pledging him implicit obedience and reverent worship. That's what it meant to say, Lord Jesus. To be saved, Jesus must be your kudios. 
Curios, if you want to say it the way it's written in English. K-U-R-I-O-S is how it's pronounced. He must be your kurios. He must be the one that is above all else. That's what it means to confess. You must be willing to publicly confess, which means to publicly agree with this. You're, you're, and you can see where that would present a problem. It's to an emperor. You're, you're telling an emperor that he, you're not my kudios. Jesus is my kudios. Jesus is the supreme authority in my life, not you. And you can see where that would be a problem back then. But you must be willing to publicly confess and to agree with what Jesus says about himself and what the scriptures say about him. This is a big problem when some of the cults get off. Some of the, some of the different religions, they don't believe Jesus is is God, or they, they, they have different views, different, that's not what the scripture says. That's not what the scripture teaches. You, you know, in order to confess him means I'm agreeing with what the Bible says and what those words, Lord Jesus means, Jehovah saves, and he is the supreme authority in my life. And that it even speaks of his deity right there. In, and by deity, I mean part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second part is what? You must believe in your heart. I have an obligation to confess Christ, and I have an obligation to believe in my heart. What does that mean? Well, mere intellectual agreement, just simply agreeing with the facts of the cross and the resurrection is not enough. It's not just, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I believe that happened. It just simple, you know, the, the simple agreeing with it is not enough. You must believe in your heart, and even that belief is not enough without the accompanying action of confessing with your mouth. So it's a belief I have in my heart about Christ, what he says about himself, it's what, and I confess what he's done. Uh, one commentator put it this way, he said, it is not the affections as distinguished from the intellect. Believing with the heart is in contrast with oral confession, not with intellectual belief. Believing is a mode of thinking and not feeling. So believing is my, it's what I think, it's, it's the way I live my life, it's my believe. you know, what I confess with my mouth is now, this is the way that I live my life. My life matches what I'm saying out of my mouth. Believing is, not, is a mode of thinking, not feeling. It is that particular mode of thinking that is guided to its object by the testimony of another or by some kind of intermediation. It is not intuitive. So the, the picture is that we're, we're saying it with our mouth, but we're also living it with our life. It's, it's the way we're living it out. Charles Spurgeon put it, I think, well, he said this. We believe everything which the Lord Jesus has taught, but we must go a step further and trust him. We must take it a step further and trust him. It is not enough to believe in him as being the son of God and the anointed of the Lord, but we must believe on him. Not just believe in him, we have to believe on him. We're told that even the demons believe in God and tremble. The demons believe in Jesus. Certainly, they, they know that he exists, and they tremble, they fear him. It's not enough that we believe in him, we must believe on him. The faith that saves is not believing certain truths, nor even believing that Jesus is a savior. But it is, the res it is resting on him, depending on him. Lying with all your weight on Christ as the foundation of your hope. Believe that he can save you. Believe that he will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with him in unquestioning confidence. Depend upon him without fear as to your present and eternal salvation. This is the faith which saves the soul. And that was Charles Spurgeon who wrote that. 
So what we have is we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, and we believe in our heart that, Christ, that, that, that God has raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Belief and confession result in righteousness and salvation. That's what it says. My belief and my confession result in righteousness and salvation. And Paul's going to validate this point as he picks up several texts from the Old Testament. Look what he says in verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation is not about what church you go to or what family you belong to or what economic status you're in or how well you lived last week or how you're doing or I'm doing really good. It doesn't really make a, make a difference. What does it say? Whoever calls upon him will be saved. The, name, the word whoever speaks of man's responsibility there. Last week we saw God's sovereignty. In, in his sovereignty, God had chosen Israel, but Israel had failed to exercise their responsibility in recognizing Christ as the Messiah. They failed, they missed it. From, if we were just to read Romans chapter 9, this is why it's so important to go through the Bible the way that we do. If you were just to read Romans chapter 9 and it was all about God's sovereignty, you might think salvation is God's doing alone and man has nothing to do with it. If that's all we had, that's what you, that you, you could certainly come to, that, come to that opinion. It's all God, and I don't have anything to do with it. It's just, it's just who God chooses, he chooses. Who he does, and he doesn't. That's what you would probably draw from Romans chapter 9. But as we read Romans chapter 10, you could say, wait a minute, according to chapter 10, what you just taught this morning, it's all man's doing. You know, it, there's nothing about God's sovereignty, really, in Romans chapter 10. It's all, it's all man, man, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, it's all man's doing. And this is where God's sovereignty meets man's responsibility. This is where we do have an obligation, we do have a choice, but God is working in the background to draw us unto himself. It's where the two sort of collide, and I don't like to separate and go, which one are you? Well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't follow John Calvin, I don't follow Arminian, I follow Christ. And Christ here in the scripture, it explained to me in Romans chapter in, in 9, I see a lot of sovereignty. In 10, I see a lot of choice. I see him coming together in some way. Well, explain to me how it all comes together and fits together and works. I can't. I can't. I don't want to try. I can't do it. And I don't think that you'll find anybody that can do it. You'll find people that choose sides often. You'll find Arminius and you'll find Calvinists or Reformed guys. You'll, and you'll find it out there. But when it comes to my position on it, I'm okay with going, you know what? I don't really know how it all works. I, when, it, when I see God's sovereignty, I teach God's sovereignty. I teach predestination because the Bible teaches it. When I see the free will of man and the choice all the way back to the Garden of Eden, not to eat of that fruit, I go, yeah, I, a man had a choice in that. Well, didn't God plan the whole thing out? Yeah, he probably did. But you know what? By then, you've blown my mind. I can't figure out, out all that. And I'm really glad I can't understand my God. Because if I could understand my God, then I probably would have been the one that created him. And I wouldn't be worshiping the God that created me. Because I believe there's lots of things that we don't know about the Lord. All we know is what he's chose to reveal to us. And when you venture outside of what he's revealed, chose to reveal to us, and you begin making assumptions, and you go out to where the areas that the Bible's silent on, you're on dangerous land. You're in dangerous territory. Where the Bible is silent, I'm going to remain silent. When the Bible teaches it, I'm going to teach it. Even if I can't fully go, well, how do they fit together? I don't always know. I don't know. But I know, I'm very confident the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, 
and the election of man. And I'm also very confident the Bible teaches man's choice and man's responsibility. And we see that multiple places sown throughout the scripture. But if we were only to take one chapter, we'd miss what chapter 10 has to say. That's why it's so, so important that we get the full counsel of God, that we see the full effect, because what we're going to find out when we get next week into chapter 11, God's not done with Israel. It's not like Israel missed it, that's it, they're done. No, they're gonna, you're going to see in chapter 11, God's not done with them. All right. Since man has the responsibility to believe and call in the name of the Lord, the gospel must be preached. Look at verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Maybe you've heard this mess, this, that, those verses taught before. It's usually taught by a missionary. Your missionary comes into the church and he's saying, I'm being sent to here and, you know, this is why I'm being sent. And this is the verses that God's showing me. How can they believe if they don't have a preacher and I'm going to be the preacher and I'm going to go share the gospel? Very good. It's a, it's a good interpretation of it. But did you know that this was really written for the nation of Israel? That, that's where the, in context, you know, it is very true about the missionary, what they would say. But in context, Paul's writing this about the nation of Israel. It all goes back to preaching the gospel is what Paul's saying. It all goes back to sharing Christ and what he's done. God could have chosen any number of ways to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, couldn't he? As a matter of fact, I think it would have been easier if he had just put a bunch of angels in the sky and proclaimed it so we could all see the angelic beings and have them proclaim it to us. And I think we'd probably have more people believing, right? Probably not. Or maybe, maybe he could have spelled it out in the clouds for us. You know, I mean, every day you go out there in the clouds and there's the, there it is, you know, believe on Jesus, spelled out for you, just clear as day. But that's not how he chose to spread the gospel. How did he choose to do it? With people with mankind, with us, with me, and with you guys. That's how he chose to spread the gospel. He chose people to bring Jesus Christ to other people, and includes us. Before they call on the name of the Lord, they must believe. Before they can believe, they must have heard the word. Paul will turn the next five areas of Scripture into the Old Testament. He's going to show us in the Old Testament that Israel's rejection of Christ was foretold. It wasn't, it, please don't, you'll, you'll hear me say that Israel rejected the Messiah, they rejected Christ. Please don't think for a moment that God was pacing back and forth in heaven going, now what do I do? Christ going to the cross was plan A, it wasn't plan B in God's mind. It was foretold in the prophets and Paul's going to show us, uh, I think there's five areas here where it was foretold. Look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In other words, many among the nation of Israel had not believed Isaiah's report during his time, because they did not trust in God's word, though Isaiah, through Isaiah and other messengers of the gospel. Therefore, they're not saved. Saving faith comes through hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Do you ever wonder how people have, oh, how'd they get so much faith? Now, certainly we're all dealt a measure of faith, the scripture tells us. But you look at somebody, they're going through something. How do they get that faith? Chances are they got it out of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If your faith is a little bit weak, and you go, well, I'm feeling a little, you know, I haven't really exercised my faith muscle lately. It's just kind of there, and, you know, it, it's a little droopy. I need to strengthen it a little bit. I need, I need to work out. 
Don't go to the gym to work it out. Where do you go? Go to the Bible to work it out. Read, the, read, read, the, read what God does with the people in the Bible and watch your faith grow. You're going to look around at guys in the Bible going, he used fishermen to do that? Think what he could do with me. He used it, uh, imperfect people to do wonderful things of God? Yeah, think what he'll do with you. Get in there and exercise your faith muscles, what Paul's, what Paul's saying. But maybe they didn't hear the gospel, Paul. Maybe, maybe the Jews really didn't hear about this. Maybe they, should know, they, they didn't know. Look at the next verse, 18. It comes from Psalm 19.4. But I say, have they not heard? Haven't they heard? Yes, indeed, Paul says. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In answer to maybe they didn't hear or have they heard, are you sure they've heard, Paul? Yes, indeed, he says. It's not a matter of hearing, but a matter of believing. There is not a part of the promised land in which these glad tidings have not been preached. And there is scarcely a place in the Roman Empire in which the doctrine of Christ crucified has not been heard. It is therefore the Jews have not believed. The fault is entirely their own, as God has amply furnished them with the means of faith, with, with the means of faith of, of the faith of salvation. That was Adam Clark that said that. It wasn't that they didn't hear. It was the choice, it was the choice that they make. Now Paul turns to Deuteronomy chapter 32. But I say, did Israel not know? Maybe they didn't know, Paul. He turns to Moses. First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. This goes back to the song of Moses. As Moses is uh, coming towards the end of his life, he foretells, God uses Moses to foretell of Israel's rebellion. Who's he's talking about here when Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy. He's talking to the nation Israel. I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Who's he talking about there? The Gentiles. The people who, who, who didn't even know the things of God. The people that Paul referred to, they're not even looking for the things of God. But now they find themselves, they find themselves saved because they're their faith. They were made up of many different nations, right? The Gentiles were. And furthering his point in verse 20, Paul goes back to Isaiah he says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was, found, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. This is meant to be a warning for Israel. It's exactly what Paul's saying happened when he says the Gentiles received the righteousness of God by faith. I was found by those who did not ask for me. And they were not even seeking. The Gentiles weren't even seeking God, but they had the faith and they believed. And God made himself known to them, to the Gentiles. That's to you and I. Finally, we see God's assessment of the disobedience of Israel and we see God's rejection of Israel. Verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. You see, I wonder if he could say that about us. I wonder if he could say that about anybody here. All day long, I'm stretching out my hands to you. All day long, you're disobedient and you're contrary. I'm trying to extend to you the salvation, the righteousness of God through simple faith, but yet you keep rebelling and you keep rejecting. You don't want anything to do with it. You're still trying to come to me based on how you live your life. You're still trying to find salvation, find righteousness because you're a, a good person. Or because you're better than the person across the aisle. Or because you're better than your husband or your wife. All day long. 
I've tried to reach out to you. What is it Jesus said? Oh, Israel, Israel, how long I've, gathered, how long I've desired to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. That's what Jesus said before, not long before he went to the cross. Are you willing? That's the question. Are you willing? Am, am I? I'm willing. I've done this. I've made this step. All, our culture promotes the Lord of our life to be who? Us. We don't, we don't worship idols. We don't have little things out there. We're not buying wooden things and sticking them on our shelves. And we can look at that and go, well, that's just dumb. But our kudios in our life, in our culture, do you know who it, is, who it really is? For most people in our culture, it's me. It's you. It's you, you, you become the one that you are worshiping. Your life becomes all about you. You are not submitting to God, placing yourself underneath of him. Instead, you're coming to God and saying, God, will you do what I want you to do? In other words, you're trying to direct him with your prayers. It's not thy will be done. It's my will be done. Lord, pray. I want to pray, but I want you to accomplish my will. We become the objects of our worship if we're not careful. See, that's not Christianity. Christianity says, God, you're on the throne. You are the creator. I am the creation. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to place myself underneath of your authority. I'm going to walk where you tell me to walk. I'm going to go live where you tell me to live. I'm going to be underneath of your word. Your word says it, so I'm going to believe it. I'm going to hold up your word. I'm not afraid to defend your word in front, in front of my friends and my relatives and my, my employees and my family or wherever else. I'm going to stand on your word and your word alone, all of it, not just the parts that I like. You see, that's what it means to submit to God, to confess what you say about yourself, I agree with, and I'm going to live that. I'm not going to then, because at the moment I start picking and choosing what's really true in the Bible, guess what I've done? I've just made myself God. Because it's not his word, it's my word, and I, and I don't like that part, so I'm going to cut that out. I'm just going to remove that out. Our culture says you deserve a break today. You want it your way. No one can tell me what to do. I mean, that, that's, that's what we hear through our commercials and our advertising. There better be somebody that can tell you what to do, and it better be the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, when you come to the scriptures and you look and you go, that's what I need to live like. That's what I need. This is right. What I'm doing is wrong. And I'm willing to allow the Lord to make the changes in me. Now understand something. When you do that, when you decide, I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to establish him as the kudios in my life, the, the Lord of my life. He, he is Jehovah. He is God. It doesn't mean that everything's going to change overnight, but it's going to begin to change slowly. Because you're going to have to begin to then show, show yourself to him and you're going to have to begin as he shows something in your life. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you were the one that was all legalistic and you were the one trying to find you know, righteousness based on how you lived your life last week, whether it was good or bad. Or maybe you're the one looking across the aisle thinking better about yourself because of somebody else looks like they're a wreck. Or they, they tend to be needy emotionally or whatever and not me, I'm, I'm good, I'm solid. It's not about that. It's about do you have Jesus Christ in your life? Have you, do, are you trusting on him? Are you leaning on him? Is he the reason for your righteousness? Or do you still look back and say, I'm not such a bad person. I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. I, I do pretty good. Every once in a while I mess up. No, if you messed up once, you failed. You see, once you come to the place where you establish him as the true Lord over your life, then your deeds don't matter anymore. Not that you can continue in sin. Should we continue in sin that grace should abound? No, we covered that. Paul says, certainly not. But my relationship with the Lord doesn't get derailed based on how I've lived my life that week. Let me say it again. Your relationship with the Lord shouldn't get derailed just because you made a mistake. What should happen is you should make the mistake, you should blow it, you should come back to the Lord in an amazing heart of worship because you're still righteous. That's the way that it should work. But how often do you 
sin and you feel guilty, therefore you're not going to go to church, you're not going to open, you're not, you feel unworthy, you feel unrighteous, and you just pull away from the Lord farther and farther and farther. That's not, that's, that's not the Lord. That's the enemy trying to pull you away. You see, when I'm depending on his righteousness, I already know I'm a filthy sinner. I already know that I'm going to fall short. And I don't look to my sin for that. So if I fall short and I find myself stuck in sin, I can look up to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't believe I'm still righteous. I can't believe in your eyes you still love me. If I was me, I would have disciplined me by now. If I was me, I would have grounded me. I would have taken away my car. I'd I'd have been grounded to my room for the next three weeks. It's not what the Lord says. Not that there won't ever be consequences, because there will be consequences to sin. The Lord says, your righteousness is from me. I'm giving it to you. You can have that righteousness. You can enjoy that relationship with God. All you have to do is, what did he say? Faith. Believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Believe that he's your curios. He's the number one thing in your life. Confess him to mankind. And stand on that, to confess on it. It's real simple. But it also requires a change of heart. It requires a change of organization in your life. It requires you to say, I'm not in charge. He's in charge. I'm going to follow him and not me. I'm not going to follow Oprah. I'm not going to follow the popular culture. I'm not going to follow what my friends are doing. I'm going to follow what the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ says. And if you will make that confession and that profession, you will find that day after day as you meet him in his word, he's going to correct you. He's going to bring you back. He's going to encourage you. He's going to lift you up. And you know what? Your righteousness doesn't have to waver ever again because it's not based on how you've lived your life. It's based on where your faith is. If you put your faith in your works, you're always going to be up and down. And if that's you, if your righteousness, if you're up and down with God, your faith is in the wrong place. Your faith is not where it needs to be. Your faith is not in the finished work on the cross. It's in your ability to keep the law that you've set up in your own mind or whatever law it is. So before we close, I want to take a few minutes and I want to pray. And wherever you're at this morning, if you say, you know what, Rob, I'm, I'm good. I'm, my faith is in the Lord. I have God's righteousness. Just spend some time praising him for it because you're where you need to be. But if you're in one of the other places, if you're in the place where you go, man, I really have been putting my faith in, in my works. That's why I seem to be so up and down. I would, I would ask you this morning to realign your life and to go before the Lord quietly on your own and, and just tell him that you're placing him in that position. Ask him to help you. Ask him to come alongside of you. And if you're in the position where, you know what, you know the Lord is not part of your life, it's not even a matter of is he in the wrong place, I have had nothing to do with the Lord, now's your chance to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to make you part of my life. I believe you died on the cross. I want that forgiveness of sins. I don't want to live the life the way that I've continued living it. I need a change in my life. I'm not going to continue this way. And if that's you, then go before the Lord and tell him that this morning. But if that's you, if, this, if you're coming to the Lord or you're coming back to the Lord, I want you to do one more thing. I want you to, once we're done praying, I want you to tell your neighbor what you did. Or tell the person that brought you, hey, I, guess I just gave my life to Christ. Because that's what it means to confess it, to be able to agree with it, but also to let people know about it. So Father, we just come before you now. Lord, as we take the next few minutes, next two or three minutes, Lord, as we come into your presence, Lord, I know that you're working in our hearts. I know that you're moving inside of us, Lord. So wherever we're at, would you just meet us? Take a few minutes and go before the Lord quietly.